Dr. Laura Klein. I'm the director of the breast program at the Valley Mount Sinai Comprehensive Cancer Care Center for Valley Hospital in Ridgewood, New Jersey. Our current location is in Paramus, New Jersey, which is right across the street from the brand new Valley Hospital, which should open late in 2023. When I was recruited here by Valley Hospital, part of my mission was not only to see and treat individual patients, but to create a comprehensive breast program for all breast diseases and breast health. So we don't only sit here and treat breast cancer patients, but we also have a very robust high-risk program. And one of the things that we've been speaking about lately and very proud of is our survivorship program. How are we doing in the fight against breast cancer from your perspective? We do see improvement. So we know that there's about one in eight women diagnosed in their lifetime with breast cancer. It's about every two minutes, a new breast cancer is diagnosed in the U.S. 43,000 deaths per year from breast cancer. But although the incidence is increasing, Mm -hmm. the death rate is decreasing. So we're seeing a significant survivorship population. And that's attributable to both early diagnosis, which means potentially a better chance for a cure, as well as better treatment on the medical oncology side, which brings me to two very important things. One is screening mammography. That could be the single best thing a woman could do for herself. We know that if a cancer is diagnosed early by mammography, that there is a better chance for a cure, and showing up for that mammography is the best thing that she could do. And if possible, a 3D mammography, which we are completely 3D at Valley, including having the smart curve by Hologic for a more comfortable experience during that mammography. Uh, if, if you could uh, uh, talk about the smart curve, I hadn't heard very much about it, and it sounds very exciting. Does it not hurt <laughs> like the uh, old <laughs> mammos used to? Right. So smart curve is interesting. What it is is a platform that adjusts to the curve, the natural curve of the breast. Oh. Um, and so then when the computer in the mammography unit acquires the images, it's taking into account the algorithm of the natural curve of the breast. So you can combine that with the things like MammoPad for a much more comfortable experience. You're not getting the full squish, as yeah. they say. So it, it has definitely improved. And we know that patients, about 93% of patients report mild to moderate discomfort, and about 80% of women delay their mammography due to the discomfort. So if we can do anything on the improving the experience side, I think we need to be at the forefront of that, which we are. It's so great that you have the smart curve. Uh, I can't wait to experience it myself. Recurrence, though, is still a problem with certain breast cancers, as I understand it. How are we doing with recurrence? So the recurrence risks have also been decreasing. I would say that there's approximately a 3.5% nine-year recurrence risk given all early-stage breast cancers, given also that those patients participate in everything that we are recommending that they do. So compliance with recommended treatment is important to keep those numbers very low. So I see in our program in particular, we're able to look at our numbers Every year, we report that to certifying agencies such as the National Accreditation Program for Breast Centers of Excellence, looking at compliance 
of our recommended treatments and then looking at what our actual numbers are. So those numbers look good today. But it is important that people have and show up for their recommended treatments. I was going to ask two questions about that. Why nine years? Is that just a research tool, data-wise? That you it's go- a research tool. I know. Okay. I always say, why 10 years? And I actually, when I'm speaking to patients, I say 10 years. So it's a more memorable number. Sure, sure. You know, those solid numbers, but yeah. Mm. And, and when you talk about recommendations, there isn't a blanket recommendation, is there? It, would it vary according to patient? It varies according to patients, and there are many different types of breast cancers that make up that diagnosis. So different groups of breast cancers have different potential prognoses that go along with it, different treatment regimens. So understanding the kind of breast cancer that you have is important, what the breast prognostic markers or receptors are, and any kind of genomic data that you can incorporate into that workup. And so what I say to people is it's very important that you go to a person who has dedicated their career to breast care, who knows how to get through the nuances of their particular disease and develop an individualized treatment protocol. So although a lot of the treatments may look similar, there may be a lot of nuance in the specifics of the particular breast cancer that the patient has. Patients come in, they often say, well, you know, my neighbor had this. Why don't I get that? Or why aren't you recommending that to me? And so understanding that really all patients are individuals and their disease may be very individual is important. I think that's hard for a lot of people to wrap their heads around where everybody is different. And when you think about it for two minutes, (laughs) you're going to realize that that's the case. Absolutely. And so having a team of breast care professionals that are paying attention to each and every patient as an individual is important. There are some programs out there that are kind of like a mill. And everybody who comes through is treated exactly the same. But we know personalities are different. Their breast cancers are different. And what they bring to the table as individuals are different. How would you advise women on lifestyle changes in order to avoid breast cancer if possible? And especially when it comes to things like healthy eating and weight. You know, we've always had this idea, you know, our parents, our mothers told us, eat healthy, don't sure. eat the bad stuff, avoid mm. chips, things like that. But we kind of did it as something that we thought was intuitive, but we didn't really have data regarding the benefits of risk reduction strategies through nutrition and exercise. Today, we have more and more information that is good evidence-based information. And so incorporating those data, that information into risk reduction strategies for modifiable risk factors, right? We have non-modifiable risk factors, which are things like age, exposure to radiation, genetic factors, race, personal and family history of breast cancer. Those things we can't really make an impact on. But things we can make an impact on are our personal nutrition habits, our weight, our consumption of alcohol, smoking, hormone replacement therapy, sedentary lifestyle. And so it's great to be able to tell people, hey, go out there and eat well and exercise. And people 
in general, don't really know what that means. I mean, a few of us do. A few of us grew up with those principles, but most of us don't really understand. So we really have thought that we need to create programs to support those modifiable risk factors, to support nutrition, exercise, other health interventions as dedicated programs. Do you ever think about taking your medication prescription pad and writing down on it, Pilates three times a week, biking two times a week? (laughs) I love that you said that. We have absolutely considered that. That is a big part of our new program called the SHINE program, which is survivorship and health interventions and nutrition and exercise, where we give our patients diagnosed with breast cancer, as well as those that are at an increased risk of developing breast cancer, a prescription for exercise, an actual prescription. And what they get from that prescription is a meeting with an exercise physiologist to assess their personal strengths and weaknesses and create a dedicated individualized exercise program for that person, which they can take and do at home in their basement. They can take to their own gym or they can do that with support of our personal trainers at the Valley Lifestyles Gym in Mawa. So absolutely. And I think that that is one of the, the strongest things that we can do for a person as well as some nutrition counseling and making some small inroads to understanding what a good nutrition is. Now, if you could only get somebody to call each person in the morning and say, hey, are you getting your sneakers on? Let's go. Come on. <laughs> chop, chop. Right. And so what is that? That's a health coach, right? Yeah. So we thought that having a health coach as part of our program was a fantastic idea. So we did that. We went ahead and recruited a health coach and incorporated that to our program. And that person, her name is Jessica Cording. She is a registered dietitian and health coach. She posts daily on our at Valley Breast Center on Instagram. You can look at that as you're waking up in the morning, scrolling through, and she has messages on there every day on how to get out of bed and get going. Or on the opposite side, how to actually get to sleep, which is a thing that so many people struggle with. And I believe is one of the single best things, another single best thing that a person can do for themselves is get a good night's sleep. Well, not only that, but a good nutrition and exercise can also improve mood, lift depression in many cases, and that helps you heal, doesn't it? Absolutely. It decreases breast cancer risk and improves your skin, your outlook, your mood. Cardiovascular risk is decreased. There's nothing bad about exercise. There was a few years ago, I think when we first, very first time we spoke, there was a flurry of preventive mastectomies due to the BRCA gene. And Angelina Jolie was one of the the celebrities that first talked about mastectomy. And is that, Joe, you don't hear about that as much anymore. That's interesting that you don't hear about it much. It's probably because it's not in the focus of the media at the moment. I think a big focus in the media is about dense breath. So there are multiple things that a person can do to decrease risk. One of the things, as I mentioned earlier, is you cannot change the non-modifiable risk factors. Having the BRCA1 or 2 mutations, as well as a handful of other mutations, puts a person at an increased risk for breast cancer in their life time up to a number that looks like 87%. So that's huge. So 
what can we do for risk reduction strategies? Certainly all of these things that we have just spoken about with nutrition and exercise, but removing breast tissue brings that breast cancer risk down to 5%. It doesn't bring it to the zero. It brings it down to the lowest possible number. We are still using bilateral mastectomies for risk reduction in the mutation group. It is a procedure that has come a long way with the advent of nipple sparing, single-stage implant reconstructions, tissue-based reconstructions. So we're doing a beautiful job with the reconstructions in that setting. And I think giving a peace of mind to those people who are at those very, very high risk numbers. About the dense breast, the whole controversy over that. For the longest time, I didn't know if I had dense breasts or not. And then all of a sudden there was a focus on it and you find out that you do. And some people I know uh, found out that they had dense breasts, but then all of a sudden later on, they, they didn't have dense breasts. Does that make any sense to you? Or is that just it, maybe it anecdotal craziness? Does. No, it's not anecdotal craziness. It, it does make sense because the reporting is not standard. The problem is, is that the reporting is not universal. It's not uniform. And the radiologists are humans that are looking at the mammography at the actual film and reporting on the degree of breast density. So the laws governing that reporting are not uniform. That causes one bit of the problem. So if you could be in California and a radiologist says you have heterogeneously dense breasts and you can be in New York and another radiologist that say that you have scattered breast density. Uh-huh. Okay, well, maybe then your OBGYN, who's writing the majority of the prescriptions for mammography, they're interpreting that as maybe that's not such a problem. And so there's a lot of confusion out there about it. But I think the first most important thing is to ask, is to go to your physician and say, do I have dense breasts? What are they reporting? And then having on that prescription, the addition of screening ultrasound. The combination of those two does increase the sensitivity, especially if there is breast density. However, when you add additional imaging, you're also kind of signing up for additional potential problems. Those problems being anxiety with callbacks, because now you're seeing little cysts and little nodules that are probably insignificant, sometimes even having a recommendation for biopsies that then are negative. So there's, it's a little bit of a double-edged sword. Having the additional screening does increase the sensitivity, but with that comes a little bit more pain. It's interesting you should I say think that. It's worth it. Yeah, it's interesting that you should say that because I was just looking into the cardiac calcium test and they said the same thing about that it could bring up false positive kinds of uh, results and right. make you crazy needlessly. But then again, yeah, it could find the, a big problem. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I agree with you. I think that, you know, nothing is perfect. We don't have the perfect solution yet, but we've got really good approaches to looking at these things. I think that the anxiety and the fear that is out there in regard to breast cancer as well as cardiac disease, cardiac disease still being the number one killer in the country, a lot of fear around these things. So people have a lot of anxiety when they're recommended to have these kinds of testing and then they have the callbacks and then another six-month callback. 
when I'm giving my talks in the community, I think it's probably the number one thing that people come up to me and complain about. You know, I'm being called back every six months. What do I do about this? I'm so fearful. There's no answer, by the way. The survivorship program seems to be close to your heart. Tell me a little bit about that as we start to wrap up. Well, because there are over 3.7 million survivors in the U.S. alone, I believe that it is imperative that survivorship care take a front row seat along with early diagnosis and treatment. And because of that philosophy, my colleague, Dr. Eleonora Toplinski, who's our head of medical oncology here at Valley Hospital, we put our heads together and we say, how can we make inroads here? We created dedicated survivorship care clinics, addressing the needs of that population, such as early detection, risk reduction. We've developed programs that I touched on, the SHINE program being one of them, which stands for Survivorship and Health Interventions in Nutrition and Exercise. That program was created for patients with breast cancer and those at high risk for developing breast cancer. The focus is on incorporating three pillars of nutrition, exercise, and community to improve overall health outcomes and decrease cancer risk. We have a dedicated lectureship series for education for patients, looking at common problems that come up in the survivorship group, such as joint pains, hot flashes, recurrence risk, mental health, and the fear of recurrence, exercise and bone health, sexual health and vaginal dryness is a big one, skin and hair. I mean, people go through this, not only are they mentally taxed, but they're physically taxed. And so these programs have been developed to help support people and address the problems that come up in an evidence-based fashion. Kudos to you for coming up with that. That's uh, marvelous. Thank you. We're very proud and we're very, we're very excited about it right now. I don't hear a lot about self-breast exam examinations. Do you still advise that? I have to tell you, you know, the American Cancer Society, Komen Foundation, they don't recommend a dedicated self-breast exam because of the fear and the lack of detection. Mm. However, in my opinion, this is something that is free, right? (laughs) While you're showering, instead of using the loofah or the washcloth, use your hands and you get to know your body. And if you feel something that is something out of the ordinary, bring it to the attention of your physician. I have to say that I have never had a patient, not once, say to me, on my self-breast exam that I do once a month on the eighth day after my cycle, (laughs) I found this mask. I never have had that. But I have had people come to me and say, you know, I was in the shower and I felt this or my husband felt this. And so being aware of your body, I think, is an important thing, knowing yourself. Isn't it crazy how we don't know ourselves? (laughs) Sometimes it takes something. Yeah, it takes something dramatic. And that being said, if you feel something, bring it to the attention of your healthcare provider as soon as possible. Don't wait. Don't wonder. There's no harm. Nobody is going to feel bothered by this. And God forbid it's something important. They can be worked up right away and get into a good position where they can have a treatment plan organized for them. Well, doctor, you've been marvelous. Anything else you want to add? Well, I think that that's it. 